Three million years ago, our ancestors were swinging from trees and today we're driving cars and using iPhones. Human evolution is something that takes a long, long time, yet our environment is changing quicker than ever. My guest on Reset Podcast today is Professor Bill Von Hippel. Bill wrote a book called The Social Leap, which talks about how humans went from the trees to the plains of Africa and then how we got to today. Fascinating conversation with Bill, and I hope you enjoy it. Professor Bill, welcome to Reset. Mate, the social leap. Take me through that. What, what is the social leap and uh, how did it happen? So the social leap is the term that I use for this uh, process that admittedly took three million years, so it wasn't exactly a leap, but uh, the process that took place when we shifted from living in the forest to living in the savanna. And basically what happened was, as the great African Rift Valley, the tectonic activity in the Rift Valley started to increase over time. The, it started to tear Africa into two different pieces, and the east side of the Rift Valley started to upwell, rise up in the air. That caused the rainforest on the east side to dry out. That's been going on for almost 30 million years. But by 6 million years ago, almost all the rainforest on the east side was, was gone. It had basically dried out into savanna. Now, the region we're talking about is Tanzania, Ethiopia, Kenya, um, Somalia. That's a pretty of, dry parts of Africa there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. They're, they, they were once rainforest, and now they're basically savanna because of the elevation that they're at. They can't sustain, they don't get the rain uh, to sustain a rainforest. And so what happened was we have these chimp-like ancestors of ours who were living on both sides of the Rift Valley in the rainforest, and the ones on the east are suddenly stuck. The forest is disappearing. Uh, they, they're evolved beautifully to live in the canopy, but they're not so well evolved to live on the ground. But now they've got no choice. The, ra- the forest is essentially gone. So they have to start exploring further and further out into the savanna, which as a consequence, they meet all these new predators know, lions and leopards that they didn't really worry about when they're in the trees. And they um, lose a lot of foods, all the fruits and stuff that grew in the trees that they used to live off. So the, you know, they're in this real evolutionary pressure cooker. And my guess is that if you, you know, imagine you're God of your own world and you decide to do this just to see what happens. So you run it a hundred times as a simulation and dry out this region where the chimpanzees live. My guess is 99 times out of 100, all you're going to have is a bunch of dead chimps. They're just not going to survive going forward because the pressure is too strong on them, having lost what they used to eat and having gained all these new predators. But with a very fortunate outcome are the ones that did happen to survive this time, who got really lucky. Now, what happened? Well, if we look at the one group of chimpanzees that live on the savanna today, we can see that probably in the beginning, all they did is skulk around the edges. You know, they're probably trying to keep out of the way of the big predators, stay as near to the trees as possible. So when some lion or something comes along, zing, they go up in the trees as fast as they can, the few trees that are around. But over time, they also became bipedal. That took a few million years, but we know that by Australopithecus, about three and a half million years ago, they're walking upright just like we do on two legs. Now, the reason that's important is that once you shift to being bipedal, your muscular shifts to interacting with the world laterally rather than vertically. You're not going up and down trees anymore. You're interacting with the world that's side to side. So for example, your pectoral muscles shift to be laterally linked rather than more vertically linked like a chimps. So they can move, move your arms around your body rather yeah. than just pulling up and down. Exactly. And, and that turns out to be super important because throwing involves a motion that a chimpanzee just can't do very well. If you watch a human thrower, they step forward. Let's say I'm throwing with my right hand. I would step forward with my left leg. I would start to spin my hips. I'd start to spin my shoulder. My elbow would come through and last and not least my wrist would snap 
And the end result of all that is I generate enormous elastic energy in the stretching of all my ligaments, tendons, and muscles as I am about to release the projectile. And so in so doing, I can throw really accurately and really hard. Whereas a chimpanzee who can't do any of those things, its waist isn't very spinnable, its shoulders are too stiff, it, it typically throws two-handed over top and not very well. So the reason that this throwing is so important and the reason that it plays such a big role in our past is that for the first time in history, we now have an animal who can kill at a distance. The capacity to kill at a distance is the greatest military invention of all time. Once you can kill at a distance, a larger force of weaker individuals can attack and success or defeat a smaller force of stronger individuals. So imagine you and I, all of our friends, wanted to kill a lion, and all we have with us is knives. Well, we could do it, but you know full well that whoever got to that lion first is going to die. The lion's going to bite them. Probably second, third, and fourth, and fifth they are going to die too. And I guess um, all of those people that would normally go first, um, yeah, died. they wouldn't have contributed to evolution <laughs> then, would they? So. No. no. And, and furthermore, we get in a long argument about who goes first, right? Yeah. I'd be like, Luke, really, my friend, after you. <laughs> after you. <laughs> right. And so once you guys are all, once that lion's got you in his mouth, I've got a good chance of stabbing it to death, but I'm not going to succeed if I go there first. And what that means is no one's going to attack it. All we're going to do is flee the first time we see a lion. But once we have the capacity to kill at a distance and a lion comes along, now our Australopithecine ancestors would have benefited by throwing at it because if they ran, one or two of them are surely going to die. The lion's much faster. But if yeah. they all throw, now they could defeat the lion by pelting it with stones and they would either have to run away or literally be stoned to death. And so the key to this ability is that not only does it allow weaker individuals to defeat stronger ones, but it only works if you work together. And chimpanzees are not a very cooperative species. They don't like to work together. They much prefer to work alone. But this would have put huge selection pressure on us to change our psychology and to start to become group oriented. And so it's that change, that, in, that important increase in sociality that caused us to survive. And it's why I call that leap, so to speak, from the rainforest to the savannah, a social leap because that was our solution. That's what got us out of trouble. And in fact, set us on an entirely new evolutionary pathway where we started to become the dominant predator um, in, the, in the world for that matter. Yeah, and when you looked at that, you, you make a point about, about the whites of people's eyes. And that was something that you said was one of the things that, that is part of that social leap. Can you, can you explain that for us? Sure, that's a great example of how our body changed in order to um, adapt to our new cooperative world. So if you look at chimpanzees' eyes, they're all brown, basically. Every once in a while, you'll see one that's not. But 99% of the time, they've got no whites to their eyes. It's all brown. Now, chimpanzees are super smart for a non-human, and they can tell what another chimp can see from the angle that it's sitting at. So other animals can't necessarily do that. They can't tell what you would and wouldn't be able to see from your perspective. A chimp can tell that, but interestingly, it disguises that information by having entirely brown eyes. So it's super hard to see when a chimp looks over to the left or right, it's super hard to see where they're looking. They're not letting the other members of the group know. But humans have evolved away from that to have these white sclera to our eyes, and that immediately advertises the direction of our gaze. And what that tells you is that if I look over, something captures my attention that I want you to know about it. Because on average, you're going to help me defeat it if it's an enemy, or you're going to help me get it if it's a food source or something that we're trying to get. So a social animal is more likely to have white sclerus than what a, an animal if, that's it, not. It will if it's got the intelligence to understand gaze direction. Now, most animals can't do that. It's just too right. much computational power. But what, if you look at all the great apes, they've all got these brown eyes. They've all got the computational power to do that, but they're just not fundamentally cooperative. 
Whereas we, of course, are loaded with computational power. And one of the first things that we must have done back there along the way is change our eye color over so that as soon as I saw something, everybody in my group knows they've got this advertisement. Oh, that's where Bill's gaze is. We should take a look at that. If it's a threat, let's all deal with it. If it's an opportunity, let's all help and get it. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so... So that, that's one of the small things that changed as, as opposed yeah. to the being able to throw at a distance and standing upright and all of that sort of stuff. That's right. One so of the I things did. you mentioned in Sorry. the book is the size of um, the changes in the brain size, which is an amazing amount of difference from Australopithecus to yeah, the, the big meatloaf we've got in there now. Um, take us through that. How did yeah, so, so if you look, it's, it's a really interesting story. If you look at the size of our brain um, starting 6 million years ago, a chimp has about a 380-gram brain. So we can assume that chimps had that about then as well, although we don't have perfect evidence. That's what it looks like. By 3 million years ago, Australopithecus had a 450-gram brain. So 3 million years in the savanna or so gained a 70 grams of brain power. That's it, from 380 to 450. Now, in the next 3 million years, we go from 450 to about 1350. So we gain almost a kilo of brain. And so what, yeah, so what happens is it, we get this very, very small increase over time, and then suddenly it just accelerates and takes off. Why does it accelerate? Well, our brain is immensely calorie-consuming. Um, it uses up 20% of our metabolic energy at all times. So if we're going to generate this organ that can do all sorts of cool things, we've got to pay the rent somehow. Now, imagine what a zebra would do with a brain as big as ours. It's just got hooves. It couldn't make any tools. It's eating grass. It couldn't make any philosophy with a zebra next yeah, to it. That's exactly. About it. Yeah, exactly. What use would it be besides its own amusement? But it couldn't pay the rent on it by getting more grass or defending itself from predators any better. But once you've got hands and you can make tools, once you start to work together socially, suddenly all sorts of opportunities emerge from being smarter. We could have division of labor. I could say, all right. You know, Luke, you go that way, I'll go this way, I'll stab it, you roll the rock on it, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Suddenly we can start eating animals that are larger than ourselves. Is no fire coming his- around, around about the same time? I'm sorry? Are we talking around about the same time that fire, our ability to control fire? No, so, or that so before fire's that? probably about a million and a half years later than the Australopithecus. So right. if you look at the... If you look at our ancestors' rib cages, you get a pretty good sense of when we probably when the quality of our food went way up because a rib cage of an Australopithecus sticks straight out like a chimpanzee's does. Not straight out, but there's a big bow to it. What that tells you is you've got a massive gut in there that's trying to process low-quality food. Right. Once you get to Homo habilis, it still sticks out, but by Homo erectus, it's flat like ours. What that tells you is by Homo erectus, we no longer needed this massive gut. So probably we were controlling fire by Homo erectus, and therefore we were able to cook our food and, and release more energy from our food with less metabolic cost to digest it. Yeah. And of course, we're also probably having a much higher meat diet because that's much more calorically dense. And we can pay the rent on that new big brain that we've just exactly. built. Exactly. When the brain grew, it didn't just sort of grow more of the same stuff, though, did it? It grew different parts of the brain that the, the Australopithecus and the, and, the, and the brains before didn't have. That's right. So if you look at your brain, you've got this, the part of our brain that we share with um, most other species is what we call subcortical. It's the underneath part. And then you've got this massive overlay called the cortex, which is really funny. It's like, imagine you took a newspaper that's really big, you know, like the size of a real newspaper and crunkle it up and shoved it in on top of your head. That's what your cortex looks like. It's this crunkled up thing to create as much surface area as possible and generate this overlaying layer that allows us to do all the kind of idiosyncratic complex 
cognitive processes that we do. So if you look at the subcortical regions, the older parts of our brain, so to speak, that we share in, more with- In stress Teflon, we talk about old brain and new brain, that the old brain's right. the, the limbic and all of that sort of stuff and the new exactly. brain, the conscious thinking part. Yeah, exactly. So we look at that old brain, um, you can pretty much predict the probability that two neurons connect to each other by how close they are. The closer they are, the more likely they are to talk to each other. Once you look at your cortex, that rule basically falls down. That neurons can be talking to each other from a great distance apart or from very close. It's all connected much more idiosyncratically. And what that tells you is that that's the part of your brain where the connections are built much, much more by experience. Not the experiences that we all share. Like our eyes, our occipital lobe has to do the same thing. You know, when, our, when we look and we see vertical stripes or horizontal stripes, those connections allow us to form an occipital lobe, but everybody shares that same experience. The difference with our cortex is that you and I see the, a flower and you think, oh, that's such a beautiful flower. And I think, I wonder if I can eat that. You know, we, we all think different yeah. things. When, and so our connections then get associated with the ways that we understand the world and the ways that we solve the world's problems. It's almost like no two people watch the same movie. Exactly. Everyone exactly. takes a different reading out of that. Mm. Yeah, and, so, and our brains get idiosyncratically connected by the experiences that we have. So people often talk about the fact that, well, our head is as big as it could be when we're born because you know, the vagina can only pass so much of a big thing through it. And I, I watched it happen. It's pretty rough, right? <laughs> and so fair enough. But, but there's actually a lot more to it than just that because our brain has to come out with a connections not really formed yet because we need experience to tell us what connections make sense and which connections don't because that's how we solve the world's problems or the problems that the world presents to us. And so your brain actually has to develop outside the womb because it has to develop through experience. It can't be genetically programmed in advance. It has to be developed through learning. Yeah, and that's, that's why when you get like you know, identical twins separated at birth and stuff, they, they have very different ways of processing the world even though they share the same DNA. Yeah, so their, their brains will end up being wired quite differently. They'll end up having lots of similarities between them because we know if we look at almost any human trait, any of the complex traits, they tend to be about 50% genetic on average. That's what the, data, the twin data and the molecular genetic data show us. And so uh, mostly the twin data. But so the identical twins will still tend to angle toward the same direction. But what's so interesting is that they do it by virtue of their own choices. So their genes nudge them to make certain choices. And the more they make those choices, the more similar they become because they start to share the same behaviors. So if you look at the heritability of intelligence, for example, in small children, it's really low, like 0.2. But by the time you're an older adult, it's like 0.7. Because a little kid has to do what their parents tell them to. They play the games their parents give them. They go to school when their parents tell them to, et cetera. But as you get older, if you're, if you're super intellectually curious, you start pursuing intellectual curiosities. If you're not, you watch reruns on TV. And so it causes your brain to move in the direction that your proclivities actually take it, yeah. which makes a lot of things about our lives, we, they become more heritable as we age because heritability in part reflects us seeking out a particular environment that we tend to prefer. Yeah, okay. So if something feels good, we're gonna do that more. And Yeah, yeah. that's our, yeah, I it's guess our it's tendency. That, that idea that we like our brain's not ever, never really fully developed anyway, but it, not till you're probably early 20s. That well, that's right. So, you, you have this ex period of exuberance when, you got, when you're a baby and neuronal connections are forming like crazy, uh, thousands per second. And then, by when you go through adolescence, you start to prune them back and focus on the ones that really work. So, by pruning back, they get the ones that aren't working very much in your brain. Yeah, they don't, they don't actually add to your ability to solve problems, they just those connections disappear. And then um, finally, there's a, 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 you go through this eventual reorganization with all the sex hormones and stuff. Women probably do at a younger age than men. I'm not exactly sure what the data are, but it's somewhere in your 
at least as a man, by your um, early 20s, the major development of your brain is done, but we retain neural plasticity our whole lives. Mm. So that's a new discovery too. Like I, I remember right. learning at university 20 odd years ago that, you know, once your brain's done, it's done. And it's, that's, that's right. Just, we know now that's not completely true. It's yeah, that's true. right. And so the, the most famous example was done with London taxi drivers and they're, um, they're required just, it's a rule of a pre GPS world to learn the entire city map of London street map, which is ridiculously huge. And it takes on average a few years for them to do that. And so they did studies of the hippocampal volume, which hippocampus is a small area on both sides of your brain that transfers short to long-term memory. So it's what's involved in memorization Mm -hmm. and they look and the hippocampus, part of the hippocampus actually grew in these taxi drivers over the two years that they learned the city map. So you have a lot of neuroplasticity if you can literally grow an area of your brain if you just keep using it a lot. Yeah, it's sort of the, that idea that you know, neurons together fire together and exactly. keep going. Yep, that's so exactly right. One of the things you talk about a lot in the in the con- is the concept of sexual selection, um, and there's some really interesting stuff about that with with you know why certain genes are more likely to go through. And can you take us through some of those things? Sure. So the, you know, we, we tend to think a lot about natural selection, the sort of survival of the fittest and traits that allow you to be stronger and fight off um, diseases and all those things are the traits that, that tend to get propagated through the species. But we tend to forget about the fact that it's also super important to attract a mate because whatever qualities you have, you could live forever, you could be the strongest individual, you could have the best immune system, whatever quality you want to go after, it won't have an evolutionary impact if you don't mate and pass those traits on. Mm-hmm. And so the qualities that allow me to successfully compete with other men to get a woman are going to be important for sexual selection and the qualities that make me attractive to a woman so that once I've successfully competed with the other males, she then chooses me and says, yes, I want to be with Bill. Those are also going to be super important. And so what becomes sexy, that is what's attractive to the opposite sex, are traits that we call honest signals of quality. And so, you know, all animals try to deceive because, of course, an honest signal of quality means you actually have to have the quality and and the qualities are expensive. But I could pretend to have the quality and that's very cheap, right? So I could tell you, oh, yeah, I graduated number one in my class at Harvard Medical School. You should take my medical advice. And you'd think, uh, maybe. Let me see your diploma, my friend. The bullshit's evolutionary. Yeah, we we exactly. make stuff up as an evolutionary thing to exaggerate as a thing to propagate our genes. Yeah, exactly. And so because we can make shit up about ourselves, people are going to be very sensitive to that. And so they look for signals that you can't fake, that you can't just make up about yourself. Yeah. So if I, if I told you I did that, you'd go, oh, maybe. But if I showed you this paper I wrote that won me a big prize in some medical journal, or if I, you see my diploma on my wall, et cetera, then you're more convinced. I could tell you I'm really rich, maybe. If I rock up at my Ferrari, yes, I'm yeah. obviously. Um, and so, so women and, and men, but particularly women, because for other reasons we can talk about, if you'd like, men tend to be the pursuers and women tend to be the pursued across the animal kingdom. Males and females do that. And so uh, women become very sensitive to what we call honest signals of quality. And those are things that you can't fake. And um, the classic example of that is a peacock's tail. So if you think about a peacock's tail, that thing can't possibly help it survive. It's this enormous length of feathers, you know, a couple meters long. It's brightly colored. And they're, they're from India originally, if I recall. And any tiger nearby is going to see them go, perfect, that's dinner. I can catch that thing. And so it's carrying around this baggage that makes it 
hard, easier to kill, not harder to kill. So why would a female be attracted to that? Well, it's an honest signal of quality because it's such a big handicap. You know, if you and I run a race and you run it with a backpack with 30 kilos of bricks on your back and I run it without that and you run the time as fast as I did, well, you're a hell of a lot stronger and faster than I am yeah, because okay. you achieve the same thing with this huge handicap, right? And so if you can pick it, up girls with big tails, big feathers hanging out your tail, you're going to be going yeah. all right as well. If you can live to adulthood with that big feathery thing hanging off your butt, well, then you must be a pretty special organism. And since she's interested in the genetic quality of her mate, she wants to have as high quality as offspring as possible. She wants to look for a peacock with a big tail because it's a sexual selection sign. It's an evidence that I'm a high quality male that you should choose. The and, other one with sexual selection too is you don't have to be the best in the world. You just got to be best to the next one, the one next to you. So exactly I really right. love that concept. But yeah. I, uh, I've worked out that that's a, the reason why I'm a wingman a lot. If I, when I was young and used to go out, I was always never quite as good looking as my friends. So I was a good person to take with them. <laughs> right, right. You're a perfect choice to take out to the bars if you're not quite as handsome or you're not quite as cool or whatever, right? And so the thing is that it's actually also the cause of why we get so jealous about other people um, or envious about other people when they have a little bit more than we do, even in context where it doesn't make sense. So imagine that, that you and I are chatting and you say, oh, hey, Bill, I I got a coronavirus check from the government today, $1,000. And you're like really happy because you got a grand. And I said, oh, that's funny, Luke. I got 1500 Immediately, your happiness would go to being pissed. Yeah. Because you're like, well, why did Bill get more than I did? Now, in, at one level, it doesn't even matter. You and I don't go to the shops and bid for a loaf of bread. So it's not like my 1500 makes your 1000 worth less. But it does make it worth less if you and I are competing for the same women, right? Because she's like, oh, Luke has a thousand. He's pretty cool. Oh, wait a minute. Bill's got 1,500. Luke's not so great after all. And so we, we engage in these social comparisons all the time. It's, it's actually one of the most negative consequences of sexual selection for our happiness because something that can make us really happy and abstract will actually make us unhappy if it turns out that others have more on that same dimension, even if it has no material effect on us. And, and a lot of that just comes down to that sexual selection, which, which kind of, when you look at different species around the place, is a really big difference. And one of the ones you pull up in your book, and I've, I've loved this, and when I do workshops with companies, um, you talk a lot about elephants and baboons and, and the different ways of leadership between elephants and baboons. And a lot of it comes down to that sexual selection in terms of who has the choice. That's right. That's um, absolutely right. Yeah, take us through, take, expand on that a little bit for me. We interrupt this podcast just for a quick message from our sponsors, Body Science. Calm Stress Support is a product on a mission to help you find your calm and live life better. Six powerful herbs combine in effective therapeutic dosages designed to reduce the symptoms of stress and mild anxiety, soothe the nerves, calm the mind and support general mental well-being. This revolutionary formula is all about assisting you in finding balance again. With the revolutionary Blue Ness and Recover Bin in the blend, this functional supplement will support your physical and mental energy, recovery and cognitive function, while increasing your ability to cope with daily stress. Calm Stress Support is the new lifestyle supplement by Body Science. Formulated to be the new daily staple in your health and wellness routine that you just can't go without. So um, different animals live in different ecologies that afford different ways of behaving to make themselves a success. And I like the elephant and baboon example because both of those psychologies exist inside us. On the one end, you've got this really group serving animal, which is 
uh, elephants. They live in these groups where, because elephants are so enormous, there's no real natural predator to them until we came along with high quality weapons. But that's so recent, it's kind of evolutionarily irrelevant. And so they're so enormous that they can do what they want. And the males go off and basically live on their own or in these semi-fluid groups. And they don't need to be around the females. They don't need any protection. No animal will attack them. And they don't gain any sexual access by being around her because when she's fertile, she advertises it with this low tone that can carry for miles. And so any male around goes, ooh, I hear that. And they go over to her and then they fight and the biggest male wins and has sexual access to her. So they've got no need to be with the group and they're not. In contrast, the females are a little smaller, so they're a little bit more at risk, but mostly they need to raise their young who are at great risk. And so groups of elephants are composed of adult females and then juveniles of both sexes. And there's a, a leader of that group is typically the oldest female. She's sort of chosen by the other elephants to be their leader. They just follow what she does. And she, the basic decisions that she makes are, where do we go today to search for food or water? And then other elephants follow her. And also to say, uh-oh, we've got a threat from lions. Let's gather the group together, put the young in the middle, and have the adult females on the outside so we can protect ourselves. And the boys and, are just wandering around, going to the pub, doing whatever boys. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and all of them are essentially eating all day because they have to eat hundreds of kilos of food yeah. to maintain this massive bulk because the food they eat is plants. It's low calorie. And so they literally, all of them spend their day eating. And so the boys, they don't want to bother with being around everybody else. They just go off, totally do their own thing. So the, she doesn't gain anything from being a good leader beyond what everybody in the group gains. So if she does a good job, uh, then everybody survives and thrives. If she does a poor job, everybody's less likely to survive and less likely to thrive. So she's completely group serving. On the other end of the continuum, we've got baboons. Now, the male baboons, uh, males shift group when they reach sexual maturity. So a lot, of, a lot of group living species, either the male or the female leaves when they reach sexual maturity to avoid inbreeding. And then baboons- How do they go breaking they, into a new troop or something like that? So they just, they'll, they, well, they'll accidentally encounter each other as they often do on the edges of their territory. Uh, and then the, um, uh, the males who are kind of juveniles will look kind of interested and they'll, they'll go, they get this wanderlust. They don't know why they do it, of course, but- that's what they've evolved to do. And they kind of go hang around with the group on the edges and, and they're young and they, they cower and, and you know, they don't pose a threat to everybody and the group just allows them in. And then from then on, once they're accepted as a full member of the group, they need to rise up through the hierarchy if they want to have preferred sexual access and they fight all the time. And so it's, it's a lot of dominance displays, but if ever there's two males that are seemingly equal, then they actually have to fight to decide who's stronger. And so the males are constantly fighting each other to work their way up the food chain, so to speak. And once they reach the top, they dominate the group basically through threat and intimidation and actual fighting. They've got these enormous incisors, and so they're really rough. Yeah, um, I think Robert Sapolsky describes um, the biggest threat to male baboons is male baboons. Yeah, yeah, that's that exactly right. Sapolsky, he's the he's the most brilliant baboon uh, researcher out there. I mean, he's Isn't he's that great to be the best yeah. baboon guy? Yeah. He's amazing. Though. He's so, he's he's like yourself actually. He's such a good storyteller as well, and 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 makes really difficult concepts really easy to understand. Yeah, he's he's yeah, fantastic. I, yeah. I love his book, uh, Primate Memoirs, is my favorite. If you okay. if you have any interest in, in what it's like to work on baboons, it's a wonderful book. Is that but, the one where he does the, the cortisol levels on the baboons yeah. and work out yeah, the best way them. to get your stress hormones down yeah. is, to, is to pick on a baboon smaller down the list? 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's sort of a sad truth that the baboons, because now their food system is very different from elephants. They're omnivores, and so they eat a lot of low-quality foods like grasses and seeds, but they also get high-quality foods like the occasional small uh, antelope or something like that that they are able to attack and kill or other small um, monkeys, things like that. And when that happens, they fight a lot over the highest quality food. And the higher you up are on the food chain, the more likely you are to take that and monopolize that for yourself. And so one of the things that they do constantly with each other is they nudge each other. They sort of semi-attack the person below them on the food chain to take the preferred resting spots in the shade, to take the higher quality food from them. And if there's a fertile female that the male's interested in, he guards her and doesn't let anyone else around if he's at the top of the food chain. So in Primate Memoir, Sapolsky talks about how he'd been taught when he was in school that the that the lead, the top baboon will protect the troop from threats and will guard them and stuff like that. But he's like, when I saw them, they don't do that at all. They're like the first one up the tree. They're like, screw it, you're on your own. They provide- <laughs> That's they provide exactly no what help. you want in your leader, isn't it? Exactly, they provide yeah. no help. In fact, there's these amazing experiments that have been done where they'll take food and they'll either uh, provision the baboons with very high quality food and tightly located together or loosely spread. And the, ba the baboon leaders will lead them to the tightly located food because they can then monopolize it and eat it all themselves and defend it oh, from the other wow. ones. And so the whole group suffers just so that he eats a little bit better. And so he can stay at the top of the food chain. Yeah. And so that in my mind, so, so what humans have both those tendencies inside us. If we look back at us before we left uh, the rainforest, we were very baboon-like, you know, chimpanzees are super hierarchical, just they're like smart baboons. And so we have this selfish tendencies inside us. But once we shifted to the savannah, we became less individualistic and became more collectivistic. We started to become much more cooperative and social. Like, like we discussed earlier, the whites of our eyes are a, a physical sign of our cooperative nature and our sociality. And so both of those processes are inside us at any one time. And what that means is that at any one time, we can be more of a baboon leader or we can be more of an elephant leader. Some of us are basically almost elephant-like all the time. Some of us are kind of baboon-like all the time, but most of us sort of shift from one to another depending on the opportunities of the situation we're in. And so the, the clearest opportunity that brings out our inner baboon is inequality. If you're in a system where the leaders get a lot more than everybody else, and everybody else isn't getting much, then everybody's gonna to strive to be a leader. And when they are a leader, they're gonna be very self-serving because that's just a guaranteed way to be a success in that kind of a rough environment. So a lot of them you might know. start off as elephants and they're looking after everyone. And like you know, Robert Mugabe, I think is one of the one of the examples you use in the book, Robert Mugabe from yeah. Zimbabwe. But he started off being very much about the people and looking after the people until he got into, into power and became a complete baboon. That's right. And so it's super hard to predict who's going to become a baboon. You know, I remember when Mugabe and Mandela both took over their countries. And I remember both were heroes. They were freedom fighters. So we both, you know, very similar lives in prison. Died. We thought they were going to be great. And Man Mandela was great, but Mugabe was awful. And so it's what it shows you is that it's really hard to predict how you're going to respond to that leadership position, because all of us have those competing motivations inside. Now, the, what the, on the one hand, what that tells you is that your, a society that's more equal will benefit from having fewer baboon leaders, whereas a society that's more unequal will have a cost of having more baboon leaders. And of course, that doesn't just hold for societies. It holds for companies and corporations as well, that 
the more you st- as a leader stand to benefit, the more baboons are going to fight for those positions and the more baboon-like people are going to become when they get those positions. It's been an amazing thing to watch during this COVID-19 how some some businesses and some CEOs, like the, the CEO of Qantas straight away when it started, they knew it was going pear-shaped, said, look, I'm not taking a salary anymore. I'm going to do this, 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 and this. We're going to try and look after as many staff as we can. And, and they kind of realise that they have to be more elephant now, whereas in years gone by when you had that, we're just looking after shareholders, they became more baboons to look after share prices. You, you raise a great example, and that is that we've, we've evolved to whenever that we have an existential threat to our group, even baboon leaders, almost always, not 100%, but almost always will become more elephant-like because an existential threat to Qantas is also a threat to the remuneration of the leader of Qantas, right? Yeah. And so if his corporation dies, well, then he doesn't have a job anymore. Now, I don't think he's consciously making that calculus. I think he's doing the right thing, but we've evolved to do the right thing when the threat is so great that the group is at risk. And that's when all of us become more elephant-like. The, gr- the most common example of that, unfortunately, is when groups of humans attack each other. Because you know, if, if that group of humans beats our group of humans in our ancestral past, that means they're gonna kill all the males and take all of the females as slaves, basically. So nobody wants that. So no matter how much I might want to lord it over you when they're not around, when we're under threat, you and I are suddenly mates. We're going to work together to the best of our ability, and we're going to become very elephant-like. And this current pandemic is a threat to every corporation on the planet. Mm. And so what you ought to see under the current circumstances is almost every leader on the planet becoming more elephant-like in their orientation to try to help their group. Yeah, it's 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 amazing to watch that sort of in-group co- cooperation, and you, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm absolutely enthralled by U.S. politics. U.S. politics uh, to me yeah. is just the most <laughs> fascinating thing in the whole entire world because Australians really don't give a shit about who you vote for. No one could really care too much, but in, in the U.S., it's almost become a an identity thing of who you vote for. And I'm wondering whether this is it might be a sort of way to pull them together a little bit. You know, they have a common thread in yeah, the so- coronavirus. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting case where it um, pandemics have the they're an existential threat to your group, but they also have a negative side to them. And that is that we evolved when there's an illness coming from particularly if it's coming from another group to become very prejudiced and to try to separate ourselves from the other group. Now, in this case, that that illness originated in China and it created all sorts of anti-Chinese sentiment um, on the positive side, if that's the word you want, although it's certainly not positive, it's now, there's more cases in America than anywhere else. So it's no longer a Chinese illness, it's an American illness, right? And so any early anti-Chinese sentiment will basically start to dissipate because you start to worry not just about the Chinese guy that you see and whether he might have it, you start to worry about everybody you see and whether they might have it. So it has a negative, pandemics have the negative quality of of making us very groupy and, and very nervous about each other, but they also have the positive quality, so to speak, of being an existential threat. And even now you can see people rallying around Trump's leadership, despite the fact that objectively you could argue he's part of the reason that America's doing so poorly, because he denied the threat when it first emerged. Mm. And arguably if he'd taken it more seriously at the beginning, there'd be fewer Americans who have it. But we've evolved to rally around our leaders and they to rally around us under these times of great stress and so you see that happening even now, despite the fact that, as you point out, it's politics is a blood sport in America. Both sides, you know, just they really hate each other. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a crazy thing. It, it makes me that there's not many good things that are going to come out of COVID-19. All right. It's not it's no. almost entirely bad. But I have this one. I've, 
I live in a place called Lukeland where everyone's nice and everyone looks after each other and unicorns fly by farting rainbows and Lukeland's right. a wonderful place to live. And I have this, this I, I probably misguided, but I'm going to go with it anyway, that something about getting through COVID-19 as a species, as a very social species as you brought out, gives me a little bit of hope that we can look at things like climate change and stuff like that and maybe come together to fix some of those other things which are a much more long, longer down the track and not quite as obvious existential crisis, but they are no less an existential crisis. No, that's right. And, and so, you know, when bad things happen and when you watch your society pull together, it can, make, it can make you realize what you should have always known, which is your capacity as a society to enact important change. And so I remember when the 2011 floods came through Brisbane and people just lined up to go help their neighbors uh, sweep out their homes and stuff, even though they knew that they're like the sewage plants had overflown and they're going to be knee deep in disgusting filth. I remember being knee deep in disgusting filth. Yeah. And, yeah. And, it, and so there's, a, there's an evolutionary thing about that too, is that it's making us, we feel good that we've gone and helped. Yeah, and that's exactly right. We evolved to cooperate right. and we, we want to cooperate. We want to work together. It makes us feel good. That's one of our evolutionary imperatives. And so we naturally do it when things get tough. And then in so doing, it makes you realize how much power we have as a collective. And I think that there'll be some of that same process that will come out of COVID-19 where we'll say, oh, wow, well, look, all these horrible things happened, but look at the good that came of the, you know, I saw a picture in Mumbai where the pollution levels were way down after the lockdown than before. Mm. And it makes you realize what you can achieve as a collective if you can somehow set your mind to it. And so problems that might've seemed insurmountable before, I hope might seem more surmountable when we come out of this on the other end. There'll be an enormous human cost and an enormous economic cost, but maybe some of those benefits will down the road start to really manifest themselves. I guess that's one of, one of, the, one of the reasons I love the word reset is that it's, it's something that we're going to stop. It's, yeah, the, the thing we, I, I, using the new book that's going to come out soon is going to, it's called Control, Alt, Delete. You know, when oh, you can cute. Yeah, I like that. Go, control, yeah. Alt, Delete. What can I control? What do I need to change? And what do I need to get rid of? And I'm hoping that some stuff will come out of this COVID-19 that will, will find the answer to some of those questions. And yeah. I think that sort of reset is probably going to be a good thing, but it's going to take a while before we see the, the benefits of that. No, that's right. And so, you know, humanity tends to be like the phoenix rising from the ashes of its prior self. And so I think if you looked at it in advance and said, hey, Bill, here's a cup of COVID. Do you want to throw it in the air <laughs> and start this? I would say, no, thanks. That's yeah. too big of a cost. But at the same time, given that that cup got thrown and we had no choice, I think that there will be some positives that come out the other end once we get through it. Yeah, I think there will too. I definitely think we'll too. And, and part of the reason is, is all that, that evolutionary stuff that you've talked about, that we're designed to be social. And I think we need a reset in terms of everyone's got a bit too materialistic. Everyone's become a bit too baboony. The, the scarcity mindset that's prevailing yeah. everywhere, I think, is a really big issue. So, you know, the, the fighting over bog roll is just absolutely crazy to me. Yeah. But and then you, you see it. Yeah, you see that. You see people fighting in the shops over toilet paper or something, and you get embarrassed as a human. And probably if you did it, you're even more embarrassed, right? And then, and that's, we evolved to learn from those experiences. We learn from either the direct shame that we experience when somebody films us fighting over toilet paper at, at Woolies, or we, or we learn from the indirect shame, the, the sort of, um, uh, you know, reflected shame that, that 
that my people, my fellow Brisbaneites or Southeast Queenslanders or, or just conspecific members of my species would do that. And I, I don't want to be that way. And so I feel ashamed and I try to fix it. And so yeah. those kinds of experiences, even the negatives, positive things can come of that. And that's where that, that whole power of stories and the whole power of I want to learn from these other experiences that I didn't necessarily have to experience. And I guess that's, yeah. we've got yeah, that's this big exactly. meat life of a brain that, that does that for a reason, I guess, don't we? Yeah, that's exactly right. Storytelling is one of our greatest gifts because it allows us, in contrast to every other animal on this planet, we can learn through indirect experience. So you can tell me, Bill, so I went to Woolies today and I saw these people fighting over toilet paper. And I'm like, holy crap, I can't, it never occurred to me that people would do that. And then we talk about it and how to fix that problem and how to avoid it. Now, of course, our ancestors were talking about how to avoid getting eaten by a lion or something, you know, when they survived yeah. the hunt. But this, the principle's the same. I don't need to experience these things. And in fact, if you look at all the things that we've learned about COVID just in the last few months, I personally experienced none of them, right? I haven't got sick, at least to my knowledge. I might be a silent carrier, but I don't know it. Um, none of those things have happened to me, but I've read so many stories and I've had friends tell me so many stories. I know a ton about it indirectly and none of it do I know directly. And that's an enormous capability as a human that no other animal has and that makes us so effective on this planet. Yeah, it does. It does. And I guess that's the social leap. So if anyone wants to have a read and work out exactly how we got to where we are, um, jump on. You can get it from most Amazon and all those sorts of places. You get yep. the social leap. Um, it's a fantastic read. Um, you can almost read the whole book just from my notes that I've taken because <laughs> I've, I've highlighted half the book because it was that good. But uh, Bill Von Hippel, you are a great storyteller. It's a magnificent book. And um, thanks for coming on Reset. Thanks so much, Luke. I really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you,